All right, so, um, so the, the points that we have to, to discuss today uh, from question, larger, question number 17 of the Larger Catechism, how did God create man, are these three things. Um, God created man with the law of God written in his heart, power to fulfill that law, and with dominion over the other creatures. Okay, so those are the three points we're going to talk about today. So let's start with this idea. Um, God, in the beginning, created uh, the man, Adam, and from the rib of the man, Eve. So those are our first parents, the last of God's creatures. Um, he created them in his own image. And we can say, uh, particularly, uh, that he created them with the law written upon their hearts. Okay, so it's not that God created Adam and Eve with no knowledge of this law and then taught them about it. Um, but he, he did, in a sense, inscribe it upon their very nature. Um, so that as they uh, took their first breath and became living beings, they did so uh, with a, an innate knowledge of this law. That's the idea. So couple of questions for you. So what law do you think this is that we're being told was, was written upon the heart of man at his creation? Speed limit? Moral. Okay, what we call the moral law. So, and, and why is it, in, in saying that it was the, the moral law, God's moral law, we're distinguishing it from what? The ceremonial law that he gave later. Okay, ceremonial law, um, and then um, also according to the confession, the judicial law. And um, so we're not talking about knowledge of, say, the, the, the burnt offering of sacrifice and how that differs from the the peace offering, and so forth and so on. There's, there's all those ceremonies that were, uh, that were given on, uh, on the mountain uh, through Moses to the children of, of Israel. That's not what we're talking about. So what we're talking about is that law that Jesus summarized uh, as these two great commandments, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and strength and mind, and that you will love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That's the law that we are um, talking about that is inscribed by God upon the very heart or nature of man as, as a creature. Um, question. Does the account of Adam and Eve's creation in Genesis 1 and 2 say this? It does not. Right. Um, is there, a, is there a law in the creation account that God gives to man? Same as commandments? Huh? Would that be the same as commandments directed? Uh, yes. And yes. Okay, what is the law given to Adam and Eve? Tend the garden, take care of the creatures, and have the earth be fruitful and multiply. All that jazz. All right. And then, and then, especially the one that is most clearly a, uh, a law, a thou, thou shalt not. Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. Um, and so, is that 
commandment, thou shalt don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is that the moral law? Is the moral law um, summarily comprehended in those words? I don't think so. Never heard anybody um, suggest that. It's a little hard to see how that would be, be so. So, um, so I think I'm right in saying that what the what the catechism is teaching here is something which is not explicitly um, stated in the actual Genesis account of the creation of man. So here's a question. So why do you think the Westminster divines were so confident of this um, that they actually put it in the confession and in the catechisms? Um, there are many things that are in the Bible, many things that, that Christians believe that they either thought was not important enough or not certain enough to include in the church's confession. And yet here we have something that is not explicitly stated in the creation account, and that they make explicit in the confession. So why, any idea why the Westminster Divines would have been so um, confident of this as biblical doctrine, that God created man uh, with the law the moral law written upon his heart. Yes, sir. Um, the Bible talks of uh, even fallen men having a sense of what's morally permissible and not permissible. Um, and even nations to whom God has not given such a revelation like the Israelites still acting wickedly and being wicked in the sight. Okay. All right. Yes, ma'am. Would it have something to do with the, um, the fact that they were made in God's image? Okay, so they were just taking the idea, the, the Genesis 1 idea that God created man in his image and deducing from that 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 must have meant that man had the law of God written on his heart. Okay, so we have, we have that. We have um, Ben's uh, observation that there are other places in the Bible that speak of um, people without the benefit of the Bible. People in the world without the benefit of the Bible who nonetheless seem to, to demonstrate a, a knowledge of God's law. Um, and that's said to be um, an innate knowledge. Any idea? Where would you go to show somebody that? Okay. Book of Romans. So we're going to look at that in a minute. So any, any other ideas? Yeah, I think well, similar. Man is created in God's image. Also, like good and necessary thing for us. You know that God had unique communion with Adam and Eve. They walked with God in the world. They talked with God in the world. Sin did not take the world. If they're engaging with God in this uniquely personal way, they have to have, they must be moral beings like God is and have this understanding. God would not be conversing with him. He would not be communicating with him in his world. If they were not, so I think there's a good and necessary inference there as well. Logically, they deduce that, and we're man is created in God's image that they must be worthy. Okay. Yes, ma'am.
Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Thank you. Can you can you imagine? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay, so yeah, there's a line uh, in Ecclesiastes uh, 7.29. Truly, this only have I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Um, so we'll look at that one again in a second. I mean, can you imagine, um, so let's say that, uh, that man as a, uh, as a moral being, having just been created, only has knowledge of only one law, which is do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Adam proceeds to uh, blaspheme God and lie to God and murder his wife. Uh, but he refrains from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, is, is he going to be just and good in God's sight? It's a little hard uh, to, to imagine that that could be the case. Yes, sir? That's what I was going to say. Is that just the simple fact that we're going to make God made good, uh-huh. does that, that seems to imply that the Okay, all right, great. Um, so remember that the, um, that the in, in a sense, the law I- exists eternally. Um, it is eternally God's will for man. Um, and it is God's will for man as God brings man forth um, in the beginning. Um, so yeah, it's... If you kind of go down the other path and try to imagine any other alternative, it, it gets um, pretty absurd. Was there somebody else that was going to say something? Yes, ma'am. The fact that it says that, um, that we're without excuse because he's made himself known Okay, yeah, I, I think that makes sense. Um, yes, sir? I think there's also a weird desire among all the non-Christian religious groups to establish the law in order it should and should not. I think that kind of speaks to a universal spark inside of all of us that understands that there is accountability for right and wrong. There it should and should not. There's very few people throughout history that have ever said, let's, let, let's be real anarchists and let's not usually pull into my strength. And in their own heart, they believe it's for I think there's a there's a universal desire to, to protect the weak and to, to love our family and to, to be honest and not lie and to protect life and not murder. Seems like those things show up in different versions all over the world, all over history. Mm-hmm. So that's not proof, but it seems to back it up that we do all have it written on our hearts in some way. We just suppress it. Okay. All right. Good point. All right. Let's look at um. Let's look at a couple of. A place in the Bible that are significant. Um, first, I want to look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, 24. And then we'll, we'll be looking at that along with Colossians 3.10. We looked at these last week. I'm going to take another look at them here. So Ephesians 4.24. So this is Paul te- Paul's teaching on the new man in Christ. And describing the, the work of the Spirit therein as um, creating man anew in God's image. And so it it suggests to us uh, what God's image truly is, um, hearkening back to uh, 
the time of man's innocence. So Ephesians 4.24, Paul speaks of the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so that clearly is um, morally weighted language. So to be created in the image of God is to be created morally upright. And then if you look at Colossians 3.10, which is kind of a parallel passage, Paul's teaching the same thing, but he, he uses somewhat different language. In Colossians 3.10, he speaks of the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. All right? So not created in righteousness and holiness, but ignorant of what constitutes righteousness and holiness. Uh, but created in righteousness and holiness with knowledge uh, that goes along with that, and that would be the knowledge of God's moral law. So that's one way to get at this conclusion. The other way is to look at the passage that, uh, that Ben was referencing in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. So if you look there with me. So let me read this and then we'll go back and uh, break it down. So Romans 2.14, Paul says, For when Gentiles, as opposed to Jews, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written on their hearts. So that's where the Westminster Divines got that phrase. Their conscience bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Okay, so when he says the Gentiles who do not have the law, he means the written law. They don't have the Bible. Um, And so they don't have a knowledge of the law through the Holy Scriptures. They've never heard the Ten Commandments before, let's say. Um, And yet, Paul says, by nature, that is, by their own human nature, um, do the things in the law. Choose to do right because they see that it is right. Um, there's, a, um, there's a real correspondence to, uh, to man's uh, moral intuition, let's say, and the law of God. Rather than being different, we, find them, we see them to be the same. Uh, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, again, that is not having the Bible and the Ten Commandments, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law, so not just any law, not another law, but the same law, written on their hearts. Well, by whom? By God, their Creator. Their conscience bearing witness. So this is what the conscience is. Conscience is the the inner um, testimony of man's own nature to the law of God which is written there. And thus, between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. They either feel um, that what they're doing is right or what they're doing is wrong. So you can see um, moral behavior in people who do not have the Bible or knowledge of the Ten Commandments and evidence of of a conscience that is... Um, compelling them to to do right as opposed to to wrong. And and the Apostle Paul uh, attributes that to the the law of God written upon their hearts. When, 
right? Is, is he saying that they've been born again? Is that the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration? No. That's the work of God in creation, is the argument. Okay? So, um, so I think those are the most significant texts, if we were to try to understand why the Westminster Divines felt so confident about this when they look at Adam and Eve in the garden and say, the law of God is, is written upon their hearts. So, um, it is, uh, it's interesting to, to note here that the um, Enlightenment philosophers, in particular the John Locke, the empiricist, um, argued that, that man is born, human beings are born with no knowledge whatsoever. They are a blank slate as they come forth from the womb. And so all knowledge uh, that, that anyone possesses is the knowledge that's gained through sense experience by coming into the world a blank slate you begin to see things and hear things and, um, and, and on you go. And that's how you, how you kind of learn things, right? So that was the argument of John Locke in a book called uh, Essay on Human Understanding, which is a famous work. And so that was a, a kind of a new, uh, a novel enlightenment theory about uh, human knowledge. And um, the 19th century reform theologians led by Charles Hodge um, argued against this enlightenment idea of man as a, as a blank slate. Um, and it was particularly with respect to this idea. Um, it says Hodge and, and others at that time argued that Locke was wrong. Um, they were not born a blank slate. Um, but that actually we come into the world with a, an, an intuition um, with respect to morality, which is due to this thing, the law of God, written upon our hearts. Now, part of what the Enlightenment philosophers liked about Locke's theory and the idea of man coming into the world as a blank slate is it suggested then that through education, you could potentially make man whatever you wanted to make including um, you could teach him whatever system of morality you chose. And he, not knowing any different, uh, would come to understand right and wrong on those terms, the terms in which he had been taught, as long as it um, seemed to correspond with his observations of the world around him. Um, and Hodge and, and those theologians were looking at that and they're going, that's not true. Um, you could not raise a human being um, to understand uh, morality in a way that is backwards to God's law and, and a human being not be aware of that and not be, not be conscious of the conflict between what they had been taught and what their own conscience was bearing witness to in their hearts. So, um, so those theologians, anyways, rejected the Enlightenment idea of man as a blank slate. They said there is innate knowledge, and particularly it's this knowledge of God's law that makes us uh, morally responsible from the very beginning. Yes? Did the Enlightenment folks believe that it left alone with no outside influences, a person who should be neutral, and that all 
Um, that's a good question. I don't know if they entertain that. Uh, I feel like that kind of flashed that pretty quick if you just watched people. Mm-hmm. We, we, we quickly slide towards selfishness. Even if they yeah. It makes me wonder if the person that said that had ever raised a child, right? Because <laughs> I did not have to teach my children to want to do wrong. Mm-hmm. I had to teach them to want to do right. So... But would they? But would they have known that it was wrong if you hadn't told? If you hadn't spanked them? Well, I mean, like the just the just the selfish uh, behaviors that you just see naturally in children. I want this, you know, and I have it, so now I'm going to hit you. You know, like I mean, we have to we have to teach them that that is is wrong, but their natural inclination. To do that, which is wrong, is there, and you know, I didn't have to teach them to react violently. That came out of them. Right. Yeah. So the so remember that we're talking about what we're primarily talking about here is man before the entrance of sin into the picture. When sin enters in, it complicates things because sin is enmity to the law of God. Right. So what we're saying is that in a in a fallen human being. You have both the law of God written upon the heart, conscience that bears witness to that, and enmity to that law. So, so the, uh, the, the, the toddler uh, is divided within himself from, from the very beginning. His parents hopefully come alongside the law of God uh, and reinforce the testimony of the conscience. Um, but um, but it's the, what we're arguing for here is that is that it's not just you um, that was the first to speak this truth into your child's life, um, but that it was already there, and you're just when they hear that from you, there's part of them that knows that knows that it's right. Yes, sir. Because what Paul says here is that the, the new man is a new creation. And it is a new creation according to the image of God. Okay. So, so what, the, what Paul declares the new man is, is man as recreated in the image of God. And what he emphasizes is the, the moral um, dimension. That, that the new man in Christ being created according to the image of God is created in holiness and righteousness and with knowledge. That's not the knowledge of baseball. Um, that's the knowledge of morality. So is the, the implication that the new man is like, not the same as obviously, but like what man was before the fall? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Um, it would be better to say um, knowledge that had been suppressed, I would say. And this passage is right. It says renewed the use of the word It's renewed knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, that's yeah. Right. It's there, but it's been um, kept down in the basement where it can't um, cause much trouble. Yes? I think it's interesting, too, that all these things we're talking about are blatant attempts to alleviate 
the accomplishment of guilt. That, that's the end result of that philosophy from the Enlightenment is that we're not guilty. Um, which implies, you know, I think she protests too much. Um, it almost feels like if there's this constant attempt to redefine, say, if there is no God, then I will answer to him. Or if there is God, we don't know him. Or if he is God, but he's unknowable, he is unknowable, uh, whatever. Like there's this constant need to escape from that, which sort of presupposes that we know deep inside the originality of what we've done. And we can bluster all we want when we lay our head down on our pillow at night and just us and our thoughts. We all know we've been selfish and dishonest. At least, if not worse. Yeah. Yeah, I think it manifests itself not just in positive sin, acknowledging, oh yeah, we knew this. We can also deny it and it manifests itself in depression and drug abuse and all the things we see running rampant in our society because of our simple estate. It's our conscience that does know this. And in our suppression, if we don't come to terms with that and acknowledge our own guilt and moral failings, when we try and suppress and say, oh, what we're doing is right, we still see it manifest itself in our lives in all of these terrible other ways. Okay. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's true. Um, this discussion kind of reminds me of you know what one of the things that we're being told now is um, what you the way you Western people think about right and wrong and about um, gender and all that kind of stuff. That is not something which is actually true. Um, that was a a system um, devised by others that was imposed upon you. you. You think now that this is right and wrong and that there are men and, and women, but, but that, I, you know, you're a, you're a blank slate. You write, you know, you, you have every right to, to come up with your own answers to these things and define them as you want to, and it's your oppressors who have imposed um, these kind of structures upon you. So um, these continue to be significant um, debates. Not just is there a God and is there an objective truth, an objective moral standard, but do we all actually know it? And the answer of the Bible is, yeah, we do. Um, so, um, so what would be some of the... Um, can you think of any particular uh, ways in which this matters? Um, to us, ways in which we, we we might not just think about things, but do things differently. This being the case, let's let's just assume that everybody, when they come into the world, uh, being descended from Adam and Eve, does in fact have the law of God written on their hearts. Um, what difference does it make? Yes. Definitely changes evangelism. I'm not trying to teach you something new. Knowing your heart already, let's reason together. That's very different from the other approach. You can assume that your children know that there's it, it hurt. It should hurt your feelings that you hurt, mm-hmm. or it should hurt your feelings if you said something that doesn't work. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. So let's say that um, so let's say I'm talking to somebody who is who is not a Christian, does not acknowledge. God maybe does not acknowledge that the Bible is the word of God, does not acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, and we enter into an, an ethical discussion. And they don't think that they say that, you know, things like 
I'm not under any moral obligation to acknowledge and worship God. I'm not in there. Um, I, I don't think, uh, I don't believe in private property. I don't think that there's any such thing as stealing. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with uh, sleeping with another man's wife. Okay. Uh, what do I do with that? I challenge that. Right? I call his bluff. I said, yeah, no, I think you do know that all those things are wrong. And, and how do you know? Like, how do you demonstrate to that? I think because the reality is if another man slept with your wife, right, you would feel yourself wronged by that man and by, and by your wife. You would. Right? You would be outraged. Um, and, and there's no escaping the conclusion then that if it's wrong for somebody else to do it to you, then it would be wrong for you to do that to somebody else. It's just the golden rule. There's no way to get around it. Right? And, so, and, and the thing is, and this is the point, that in, in that moment in the conversation, we are to assume that there is something within that unbeliever and, and that is on our side, right? That is at that moment bearing witness to the truth of what we're saying. And, and that conversation may end and that man may um, go on, but he's not going to get a, be able to get away from this troubling sense within himself um, that he was wrong and the Christian that was talking to him was right. So it, it has a significant place in both apologetics and evangelism and why uh, I uh, am, am particularly uh, will find myself agreeing with those apologists and evangelists who, who emphasize go for the conscience, right? Don't get too bogged down in the intellectual discussions about the age of the universe and these sorts of things. Those are the discussions to be had. Um, but you have an ally in the conscience within that person um, that he cannot get away from. Uh, no matter how hard he tries to suppress it, no matter what he's telling himself, there's another voice saying to him, uh-uh, you know, that's not right. And so, so that's what you want to appeal to. That's the way to, to kind of get under that person's skin so that it's harder for them to shake you off uh, and, and move on. And I think that's a pretty good observation of human nature, and this is kind of the biblical theological basis behind that. Yes, sir? And to which they are accountable, and they're not even 
Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Um, so it's good for us to, to see that and be confident in that. that that's, that's right. We're not wronging people um, by um, holding up the law of God as the universal standard of ethical behavior. It's, it's, not, it's not just for us. It's for everybody. Um, I do want to, just a point that I think Amy made, and I just want to stress it again. One of the, the questions that is asked sometimes is, how can God um, condemn and, and damn people who have never heard the gospel before? Um, and the answer is because they're, they're, they're condemned and damned not for not believing the gospel, but for uh, against the knowledge of God's law written upon their hearts, transgressing that law in their lives. So that's the solution uh, to that kind of thorny question. Um, I'd also point out that in um, C.S. Lewis's apologetic Mere Christianity, this is his starting point. Um, if you go back and look at Mere Christianity and chapter 1, he begins with the, the observation that there is this basic common uh, ethic among all the people of the world, not just Christians, but people of, of other religions. Um, and he actually documents that uh, in the appendix to the abolition of, of man. He kind of goes through the religious, um, the, the sacred texts of uh, different world religions and shows how they say the same thing. And so it's the, um, the, the recognition of that uh, natural law, we say, or the, the, the understanding of right and wrong, which seems to be common to human beings everywhere. Um, that is itself uh, potentially a starting point for the, for the argument of the existence of God. And this is one of the things that uh, atheists like Sam Harris are really working hard on, is to try to be able to explain that without God. Um, and uh, I would say so far, he's, he's only persuaded the people who are already persuaded. Right? Um, it's, a, it's a struggle to take Darwinian survival of the fittest and, and end up with universal altruism. <laughs> that's that's tough, uh, and so uh, so. Anyways, uh, those are some of the ways in which in which this becomes important. So let's um, um, move on, and I guess we'll have to get to these things quickly. Um, so man is originally created with God's law written upon his heart, and yet created subject to fall. So along with uh, intellectual knowledge and the witness conscience and the moral sense, um, there is the will, what, what you might call free will. So God does uh, allow man the ability, if faced with forbidden fruit, to choose for himself and to suffer the consequences one way or another. Um, so that is the explanation for um, how Adam and Eve could fall and how God as their creator um, could justly hold them accountable for their transgression of God's law. Um, so I won't dwell on that. Again, Ecclesiastes 7.29, Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So it's clear where the blame uh, falls in that. You can't pin that on the Creator and say, well, yeah, you gave us the knowledge of this law, um, but no power to fulfill it. Like, oh, no. Um, you had it, um, but you chose to do otherwise. So the last thing I want to talk about here, just in passing, is the idea of dominion. And um, I'll try to give you 
the opportunity to, to speak to this. I just have one observation about this that I want to make since we're here as we pass it. Um, there are some Christians in our time, um, I'm particularly aware of the post-millennial reconstructionists, if you know those guys, um, who've kind of taken the idea of, gen- of dominion in Genesis 1 and sort of run with it. Um, and so they uh, have rethought the Christian family in terms of the Christian man's dominion. Um, they have at times um, urged for something like the Christian takeover of community organizations in the name of Christian dominion. Like, let's get Christians in there and take over and Christianize this thing. Um, and then they have even developed think tanks where they've been engaged in very detailed social planning for the eventual Christian takeover uh, of the millennial kingdom. Um, this is my opinion. Uh, I've never seen any real good come of this. And at times I've watched it bear some really ugly fruit. So I'm kind of suspicious. Um, so my advice would be something like this. If d- dominion is not something that's actually emphasized in the New Testament scriptures, it's there in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, it's not a theme that is hammered, I don't think, by, um, by the apostles of Jesus Christ. So I would urge that if we'll devote ourselves to the teaching of Christ and his apostles in the New Testament scriptures, um, we will have plenty to do. Um, plenty to occupy our times in this world as the disciples of Jesus. And as for dominion, um, the degree to which it is actually possible and appropriate for Christians to exercise dominion is best achieved in that way, by just doing what Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament scriptures teach us to do. So those are my thoughts on dominion. So any, anything else that you want to throw in there in a few minutes and all that? Yes, sir. Um, he, yes, um, I do think there is a is a there's a definite sense in which yes, Christ as the second Adam has come to to take dominion, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that we as His followers um, who are being remade in His image and according to the image of God, we too um, shall have this um, crown of, of glory of of dominion restored unto us. So um, in, the, um, in the consummation, we shall sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We'll sit on Christ's throne with him, judging the nations. Um, so I don't know that I would, uh, in trying to stay with biblical knowledge, that I would limit that um, to Christ and not us. Um, but there is a sense in which um, in what he himself uh, obtains and what he, uh, what we partake of in him, dominion is a part of it. Um, if that speaks to what you're saying, but it's another thing to say, um, and because of this, um, now let's strategically get together and see if we can take over the 
County Library. Um, because that's, this is where we are. Like, this is the moment, right? Dominion is ours, let's take it. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I'm like, wait, 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 I don't. That's a, that's a step I'm not really seeing in the Bible. Yes. Yeah, I think what you see in that is getting first and foremost, Christ is coming to take spiritual dominion. His work is spiritual dominion. To try and take that approach, and again, I have some post mill leads, and I've observed this, of getting again the cart before the whole portion. You don't change that without the hearts and men first being changed. Mm -hmm. The hearts and men have to be changed first by the inner working of Christ before the other can really have any real fear. So if you have a hope of that, first and foremost, your primary focus should be on proclamation of the gospel mm -hmm. and pray that the Holy Spirit change the hearts of men. Otherwise, the other will be completely ineffective. Right. right. Not a subversive takeover. Right. Yes. Yes, ma'am. So when it says dominion, it specifically has been followed by listing the animal. Yeah, and I do think there's, you know, Jesus speaks to a, a misunderstanding of, uh, of dominion or lordship. The Gentiles exercise dominion, you know, he, I forget exactly where that passage is. He teaches his disciples to be servants, rather, instead. So, yeah, you, you, that's one of the errors you want to avoid, is to take a, a, a worldly, a fleshly concept of um, dominion as dominance um, and try to achieve... Um, kingdom objectives uh, within that spirit. All right. Our time is up. Um, I'm, as we begin next week, I, I'm, I may give you an opportunity to speak about more. Because you may, you may continue to think about it. You may have some other thoughts. And I guess potentially there's a lot to talk about that. I, I don't know a whole lot about that reconstructionist world, but what I've gotten of it. Um, it sounds off to me. Um, all right, well, let's uh, let's close. With